Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. What up, my brother? How are you doing? How's it going, dude? How's it going? It's going good. I'm, I just, uh, I think I finished about five watchings, no question wow. about Dune. Yeah, I'm serious. <laughs> and I went back and watched the Lynch version. Yeah, so we, we watched the Lynch version not that long ago. I've watched the new Dune three times now. So uh, I haven't caught up with your five, but uh, no, it was <laughs> once in the theater and twice on HBO Max to prepare for this um dude i haven't seen in the theater yet how was it it was great it was excellent the the sound is really great i mean tom zimmer you know yeah you expect so we're recording this episode y'all audience members just a few days after our last episode and just a few days after dune premiered this past thursday night at midnight or friday in theaters and this is the following wednesday the 27th of october when we're recording now so this movie's still very fresh, and I think this is probably the only time we've covered a topic of something that's completely, totally current, and we have the opportunity to spoil it for everyone. <laughs> it's as contemporaneous yeah. as it gets. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're yeah. going to spoil it, so make sure you've watched the movie or, you know. You know what? The yeah. only thing is, though, I, I will say that we can't really spoil plot points on a 50-year-old or 60-year-old book, right? <laughs> Going into this... We're going to talk about the movie itself specifically, and you know we'll definitely talk about how close it was adapted from the book and all those kinds of things. But we're talking about the movie itself. So if you don't want any aspects of the movie spoiled for you, just know that the actual plot is pretty much exactly like the book. There's very little left out from the novel. I mean, there's a little bit, but not a whole lot. And I'm trying to think of things that were changed, and there's very little of that too. Yeah. If you haven't read the book, don't listen to this because we'll definitely spoil the plot of Dune for you for sure. Dude, if you haven't read the book and you're this far into listening to Infinite Worlds podcast, I mean, we pretty much regard Dune as like the greatest and not just us, but most people I think will or many will regard Dune as the greatest sci-fi novel ever. Right. And that's one of the reasons we felt it was really important to just jump on this. It, besides being monumentous for science fiction fans, just because Dune was so monumentous, it was our second podcast episode. We covered Dune, the book, and the, the series of books, and the David Lynch film. I think that was more than two years ago now. And 26 episodes later, 25, 26 episodes later, we're going to go back and do it again because not only is the book and everything really important to everybody, but the release of this movie was really important to everybody. This is a movie that got shelved because of the coronavirus. This was supposed to come out December of 2020, and it got put on the shelf for a number of reasons, but the COVID outbreak, of course, was one of them. And this movie premiering again and being in theaters again feels to a lot of people like the world starting back up in a way. Not that it hasn't been slowly kind of starting back up all the whole time, but the movie theater experience has been really limited over the past couple of years. I still haven't seen a movie in a theater since freaking February or January. I don't even remember of 2020. You know, that's almost 2019. Well, the last movie I saw in theaters, I know my wife and I discussed it, was Parasite. Oh, yeah. That was a while ago. That came out in theaters in Korea in 2019. Yeah, I didn't see Parasite in theaters. That was a crazy movie, man. That was cool. I dug it. Dude, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you a little bit of uh, of trivia, real quick because I this is something that I always 
I'll actually preface this. I got really, really into like trying to learn about physics. And so I was I was so fascinated, like to learn about, you know, Einstein and these crazy like theories that he had come up with as in regards to relativity and quantum mechanics. And and it just seemed to me that not knowing that much about it, I was like, how, how did a human being just come up with something that just completely changed the world? And um, and the, but the more I researched it and the more I researched Einstein, there were he was standing on the shoulders of other greats. You know, it wasn't like, but, but I didn't realize that I didn't realize like at first glance, you know, you hear so much about him and Hawking and the more I delved into it, I was like, no, there was actually, there were many people who were inching towards this. He just kind of put it all together, but there were people who were doing that. And so I, I, you know, it's, it's like, oh, okay, well that's kind of makes sense. That's how, you know, humans learn. And one of the things that we have been talking about uh, you know, it came up in the last podcast was, that we recorded was that, you know, you get these really influential, like amazing sci-fi stories. And you're like, where the hell did all of that come from? But if you look at Star Wars, you know, you can see that he's taking parts of Dune, right, which we're talking about today, and parts of like Kurosawa and the samurai and parts of, you know what I mean, just the different war movies and the, the, the biplane fights and all that. And so I started like looking like last week, I started looking into Dune and I was like, you know, so many of the things in Dune just had never really been done. But I didn't realize that there was a like sci-fi author. And I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but his name was Edward Elmer Doc Smith. I've heard of Doc Smith. I've never read any of his work, though. So Doc Smith wrote a series that he dropped the first book in 1948, and oh, wow. it was called Triplanetary, and it's based on – it's a, called the Lensman series. And that's why I know Doc Smith from the Lensman series, having seen like the book covers, but I, I've never read any of the books. Yeah, I, I haven't read them either. I looked through a little bit of them, and the writing is really, really bad. Oh, and okay. so um, – it's kind of, it's, you know what, I mean, the reality is, is that for all things, even storytelling, writing has gotten like so much better. People have learned, people have learned to really get to the point and really cut the exposition <laughs> and you know what I mean? And like find a voice and all that. And I started, I'm sure there are other people out there like now people can't read or write at all. And back in the day they had Shakespeare, but you know, I, 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 I tend to, I tend to agree with you though. I tend to agree with you art develops and language is an art. It does, right? You know, you get someone like Hemingway who just gets just a minimalist writer or Faulkner, kind of like in that Cormac McCarthy vein. But, you know, the writing actually develops, you know. And so I started reading part of, of, of the first book, Triplanetary, and I was like, there's not a, in a million years could I read this. Or even like Asimov's Foundation, I find that very difficult of a read. You know what I mean? He's okay. very conceptual. He he builds out the world. But as far as like really getting to it and getting into the character and getting it, I just kind of struggle with it. I'm not saying it's all not right, great, right. but we all have our own favorites for sure. Right. You know? Yeah, for sure. And 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 I tend to to drift towards like more minimalist writing, but I do like 
I love Dune. I think Dune was written amazing. It's 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 just it's a little dense though, dude. I will tell you that. Oh, there's did, no no question about that. I turned a friend of mine onto Dune years ago, and at first he was like, "I hate it. I can't read it." And then I was like, "Dude, you got to go back. You got to go back." And finally, he went back, and now it's his favorite book he's ever read. You know, so yeah, that, that I, happens. Right. You got to get through that. Like, OK, I'm in the, the voice. I'm in the world. I'm in the anyways. So Triplanetary, one of the big freaking plot points of Triplanetary, which really wasn't hit that much on the movie in, in the 2021 version, um, like it is, especially in the book, but is the uh, genetic breeding program. Right. And it's in there. And and yet I'm like, oh, you know what? It's just even freaking you look at someone like Frank Herbert, who's just this book is absolute masterpiece. You know, he was in he was taking things that he was exposed to. You know, he was exposed to he was studying as kind of an ecology. He was studying dunes in Oregon. Right. You know, and he was watching what was happening with the dunes and how they covered everything up and they just moved about, you know, and he was like, that would be really cool. And then he had Lensman, you know, where, which we're talking, which was all about like this genetic breeding program. So I, I thought that was interesting, you know, because we keep hitting on that where we keep going, dude, this is really, you know, parts of this and parts of that. For sure. I've got like a trivia note for a little later on when we get to that part of it about the building on concept. It's just one of the trivia bits from the IMDb page. But you know what? I'll go ahead and just get it out of the way. When I prepare for these things, if there is a movie adaptation or a movie, you know, related to the podcast, I always go through and learn about the movie, learn about its influence, learn about the development. And I read the trivia pages. But this one really, I think, puts together a lot of what you're saying and puts together a lot of what we've said over the course of this podcast that we're doing this podcast. Okay, so. Here's the trivia. Denis Villeneuve previously directed Blade Runner 2049 for producer Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott was at one point in discussions to direct Dune. His own film, Alien, was written by Dan O'Bannon and designed by Giger, Foss, and Mobius, all of whom had been working on Jodorowsky's Dune adaptation and brought them all together for Alien. So the point is, is that those sci-fi franchises have been sort of like the baton has been passed to the next generation in a pretty substantial way. Like Ridley Scott and Denis Villeneuve were working together. And this was a franchise that he was previously involved in. Like, although Ridley Scott never made a Dune movie, he got together with all of the guys who were working on a Dune movie to make his own movie. And then the, the whole Blade Runner connection as well. That's fascinating, right? It's crazy. <laughs> it just goes to show you how all those influences just kind of build. And, you know, it's not, this isn't in the writing. This is in like the filmmaking world. But, you know, again, it's sort of the same thing where you're just building on the previously existing materials and learning from it, taking influence from it to create new art. You bring up a really good point. You know, it's important to understand that filmmaking is such, I've, I've worked on films a lot and been on film sets and, and um, and I can tell you, it is such a freaking team effort. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because, I mean, even even look at Star Wars, right? I mean, if you look at George Lucas, how dependent he was on those initial character drawings for just what he, he didn't know what freaking Darth Vader was going to look like. He just thought of a villain and thought, you know, like a bad guy samurai. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then help me make him look like a space guy. Help me make him look like this, whereas the novelist never does right. that, just doesn't do it. It's all in the novelist's right. head. Like you said, though, you know, the stuff that's in the novelist's head is often put there by other novelists. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Just like you say, like the Lensman series probably was an influence. I mean, I don't know for sure, but it, it's no question that he was reading science fiction books. Yeah. And a breeding program. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You look at the differences between, what is it, Jodorowsky? How do you say his name? Jodorowsky? Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky. So you look at like the, the documentary that details all of, you know, the drawings of him trying to bring it to life, which he's doing with like a team, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got David Lynch and him visually bringing this thing to life. And now we've got this 2021 Dune and just watching it, I am blown away by the costume design and by Mm -hmm. just the visuals. I'm like, holy shit, man, it is dope. Towards a review, I don't know if this episode is going to end up being a review so much, but I'll say right now, I enjoyed the movie. Is it the best movie I've ever seen? No. Is it what I hope for? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, honestly. I don't think Blade Runner 2049 is as good as Blade Runner, but I still think it's an awesome movie. This is the best movie version of Dune that exists, for sure, and also probably that you could get. You'd be asking a lot to ask for a better version of Dune than this. You know what I mean? It's so good. You know, I'll go back to it again. For me, Dune, I don't look at it, and I'm like this with novels that I love. I don't look for a movie to replace it. You know, I look for it to be a companion piece that just kind of enhances it where you're like, oh, okay. Well, you just like trading cards or something, right? Just like when we were kids in Star Wars, you had trading cards and little action figures. Those things didn't replace the movie, right? Those things just added our enjoyment of it. Yeah. And I I just think the movie is like that. For me, it's very hard for me to, to stand back and say, what would it be like to watch this movie if I didn't read the novel? Because guess what? I did read the novel and I've read it many, many, many times. I talked about this before with with the Lynch version. I fucking love the Lynch version. I think it's amazing because it's David Lynch, who's a cultural fucking figure. So to even see what he would how he would be influenced by the movie is is amazing. You know, and and so there are so many things about that movie that I love. Um, But again, it doesn't replace the book. And the same thing with this version. I loved the fucking movie. I thought that the 2021 was incredible. My only thing is, how do you really appreciate it without reading the book? Because like I said, they really didn't get into the genetic breeding program and the importance of that. The Bena, Bena, Benny Jesuit. There's the Bena Jesuit, there's the, but there's also the Bena Talilax, I think that's what they're called. And they're like another order. They're the ones that created the character Piter, the uh, Baron's Mentat. Yeah, they're basically. Well, okay, well, wait so, a minute. Hold on. I think that that group right there—they're the one that do the cloning. Yeah, they do cloning, but they—but you're talking about the Bene Gesserit breeding program, as in, um, okay, let's make sure we're on the same page here, because it all kind of like as the book series progresses, that kind of mushes together a little bit. Yeah, the Bene Gesserit had the breeding program to breed and to get the Quizat Tatarat, who would be the one. Right. Okay, I just want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, but you're totally right. They didn't get into it a lot. They did a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, Mother Helen Hyam was like sifting sand, you know, we sift people. And, you know, there were some allusions to it, I guess. Yeah, and where, where she kind of scolded. The big part of it is that she scolded the... Um, Lady Paul- Jess. His mother, yeah, Lady yeah. Jessica, for having a son. Right, and that's like a much bigger plot point in the book. Huge plot point. She was only supposed to have females, and she had a son to appease Duke Leto. 
Right. And now the question is, okay, well, you blew it because you don't have a daughter and you had a son. And now you think when your arrogance that he might be the Kwisatz Haderach, but he's not supposed to be. And when he gets tested with the Gom Jabbar, there's a good chance he's going to die. Right. The biggest plot point for me that I think kind of got glossed over a lot, and this is something that in discussion with other people, but it was clear that they didn't understand it. And that's that the spice melange gets you fucked up and yeah. makes you trip balls. And tripping balls is how the Spacing Guild is able to navigate faster than light travel because they're able to visualize the correct path through a psychedelic experience. That's right. And, and that for me was my biggest complaint with the movie was that despite loving everything about it, it wasn't psychedelic enough for me. And because you're right, that, that is what differentiates this hero's journey from Star Wars, right? Is right. that when he's on this hero's journey, he and, and, and obviously they haven't gotten to the point where he's going to, to, to drink the spice and have that ritualistic experience of the, the worm's water. Exactly. Because he's not the water of life. So because he's not there yet, we're not there yet. And because we don't meet the space guild navigators, which I was so right. bummed about, because ultimately the whole book is what's what's really so rad about it is that he Frank Herbert's like, well, I'm going to take the, a metaphor for oil because of the Middle East, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and, and everything is dependent in navigation and the whole galaxy universe's economy is dependent on navigation and travel, right? That's how the economies trade and all these things. Without the spice, there is none. And right. that was not, that just wasn't emphasized enough. And I wanted they, to they see- They say it at the beginning of the movie. They say it very briefly during Chani's expository intro monologue. They explain it, but very briefly. They're just like, without it, it's impossible. And you're like, but why? I know, but why? And not only that, where I find that a flaw of filmmaking is the fact that this film, motion pictures, they're called motion pictures for a reason. It's a visual medium. Right. And so to think that the audience is going to get a plot point so important through Which is one, one line. line of, of right. not even a not even dialogue. It's like voiceover monologue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're come right. on. You're right. I think and I do think that these plot points are more emphasized in the second part of the book when you actually are introduced to the Spacing Guild, assuming that these scenes make the second version, by the way, as of I think yesterday. The second film is greenlit by Legendary Pictures. Thank goodness, right? Yeah. This is a really unusual circumstance where the film studio agreed for a two-part movie but only greenlit the first one. Like that's a really unusual thing for a stu movie studio to do. It didn't um, even make sense to me because it, I thought that like with Peter Jackson and The Lord of the Rings, it, from economies of scale, it makes more sense to when you have all the sets and you have all the actors and you have everybody ready to go in the cruise, film all three. That's what he did for Lord of the Rings. Right. And then everybody will be the same ages. You know, we, it will reduce continuity errors. Someone dies. You know. Yeah, or someone dies and you have to recast them. And that happens. I mean, that does happen. You know what I mean? And just regular sequels to movies. Yeah. But, you know, you want to try to your best to keep everything as consistent as possible. And filming them all together does do that. But this was a lot of money. 
to spend on a movie. No question about it. Let me find out what the uh, budget was for this movie right quick. While you're looking that up, I will say this also, that we didn't meet the emperor in this one, right? Before we get to the end of this, let's talk about the characters that weren't introduced and what we want to, you know, hope for those characters and stuff. Too. Going back and watching the Lynch version, like the first scene, one of the first scenes is where we meet the em emperor and the navigators, right? And the the navigator right. comes in and they discuss the plot to bring um, the Atreides, House Atreides to Dune to assassinate them. They basically uh, have Baron Harkonnen explain that to uh, Raban at the beginning of the movie instead without yeah. introducing the Gilded Navigators. So, so I am definitely going back and I'm going to take the that scene, I'm cutting it out of the Lynch movie and I'm inserting it into this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to you, I'm doing it. I'm a psychopath. I don't care. We just assume that Max von Sydow like, comes back to life to play. I don't even care. <laughs> okay, so the budget for this film was $165 million bucks. So that's a shitload of money. That's not a small budget for a movie by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, that's why they were hesitant. But as of now, Box Office Mojo doesn't update day to day during the week, it looks like now. So over the weekend, before they stopped tracking the Monday, Tuesday, and today's Wednesday numbers, it was already around $230 million worldwide. So, you know, it's going to make money. You know, it's going to make $100, $200 million for the studio. It's all good. Yeah, and we don't we don't know how much HBO paid. Also, you know. Yeah, that, and there are other probably, considerations. Probably yeah, fifty million. You know. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely other considerations as well. Either way, we're lucky that they greenlit it so quickly, so that they can go ahead and get right into production. So the second part won't have too much continuity problems or have yeah. too many continuity problems. Okay, so I want to address some of the criticisms because mostly I like the movie. But when I hear criticisms of a movie, I try to examine them with a fair mind. One of them, the most obvious one, is that it's confusing. This was the big challenge for DV, trying to make this story accessible to a mainstream audience. Because even though the book was a big hit, and even though this movie is apparently a big hit, this story is dense and confusing and has a shitload of made up words in it that, you know, unlike Star Wars, it's the Jedi and the Sith and the Force. You know what I mean? It's all one syllable, easy to remember black and whites, not words like Quitsat's Hatterack. And oh, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. And hard to remember names of characters. Hard, Vladimir Hart and you know these are they're strange you know, Peter DeVries and Dr. Wellington Yui and all this stuff there's a lot of confusing terminology in Dune besides that the plot itself is pretty dense and confusing so I think personally speaking that DV was up against an impossible task I think there's no way to make this plot easy to comprehend in the film format perhaps like I've heard a lot of other people say this should have been a series instead and I tend to kind of agree with that. If they had done six hour long episodes or eight hour long episodes to cover the books, I feel like they could have introduced concepts more naturally, like you said, with just a quick voiceover, two second long voiceover. You know, my big criticism is even going forward, I just don't see how given we haven't come that far in the in the book. And so for me, it's like he hasn't even been brought into the caves. He hasn't even seen the water of life. You know what I mean? So for me, it's like this should be three movies, three three hour movies, which brings it to where you're talking about. Right. You know, do it like Lord of the Rings. It's that big of a book. You know, it's that dense of a book. Right. 
I say, you know, since the studio was only going to let him do two books, there have been talks of a third movie that would branch into some of the events of the novel sequels. We'll have to see how this movie continues to perform and how the sequel, Dune Part 2, performs. The other big criticism is that the movie is, and this this is the same word, I've read this word like several times on the internet, and it's soulless. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's an entirely unfair criticism. And a good friend of mine mentioned this to him, and he was like, you know, the truth is, is like, I love the book, but you could really say the same thing about the book. I have to like grudgingly kind of agree with that. The book feels in a lot of ways almost like a history book. The characters' inward thoughts and feelings aren't explored that often in the books. And because of that, it almost reads like a history of the things that happened to these characters than a novel sometimes. And that's one of the reasons that so much information is able to fit into a book that size is because it's written that way, like as an analytical explanation of the events as they occur with a bit of delving into the characters' minds, but not a whole lot of that. And I feel like because of the source material, you weren't probably going to get a story that was super human, that carried a ton of emotional weight. I guess is what I should say. Yeah. For people who aren't familiar with the books, your main characters are rich ass white people going to this other planet to, you know, control it. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's hard to engender a lot of sympathy for characters like that, especially in this day and age. Well, yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, we're really looking at an, uh, an allegory uh, for, you know, the uh, uh, colonialism sure, and imperialism of going to the Middle East in, in the 50s and taking their oil. You yeah, know, yeah. I mean, that's essentially what the book is about, right? That's the other thing is that People are looking at this movie because you've only seen the first part of this movie. And really, you only see that in Dune, the first novel, where there's like a lot of white saviorism. Like Paul is going to go save the sand people. You know what I mean? It smacks of white saviorism. But what people don't know, and this again, this is a big time spoiler, is that Paul ruins everything. Like Paul eventually in the books becomes the emperor and he uses the Fremen to terrorize everyone. And creates a fascist regime out of the, the whole universe. Of the, out of the whole universe. And I did like, I did like that right away. He starts. I don't know if you remember this scene, but he's with uh, his mother, Lady Jessica, mm -hmm. and they're in the tent. They're in that tent under the dunes. Oh, right. And because of all the psychedelic nature of the spice that's inside the sand, right. he starts having a, a horrific vision, and where he's horrified. Mm -hmm. Because he's like, this is what's about to happen. I'm about to unleash a war on the entire – and dude, you bring up a great point. There is no way you know what he's talking about unless you've read the exactly. books. Not the book, the books. The books, <laughs> exactly. And you know, it's it's a big time preface and you know, I would think that a regular viewer would see that part and be like, well, he'll know better and – avoid that. That's the other thing is Paul is not this great visionary. Paul is an instrument caught up in these great machinations. Paul is just a piece of the puzzle in so many ways. And, you know, they're calling him uh, the savior on this planet, but that's only because the Bene Gesserit have been on this planet whispering that into their ear for a long time. Which, you know, is another point that sort of glossed over in the movie as well. Yeah, where they're seeding these stories. Right. Dude, that is such – I forgot about that too. You're right. That is – the myth 
and manipulation of myth, like the Benny Gesserit are the most manipulative <laughs> freaking group ever. They want to manipulate everything and they know how. Yeah. They know how to manipulate through breeding. They know how to manipulate through myth, through planting myth. Through, yeah, it's pretty dope. That's a great point, man. And there's no way to understand that either. Right. There's no way. Right. Getting these like details into a movie like this, is, it's a challenge for anybody. And that's why the movie, to me, I'm giving Dune, and again, I told I didn't know say I was going to give like an official review or anything, but seven and a half, eight stars out of ten. You know, seven and a half or eight out of ten for me, maybe an eight. Like I say, there there were some some wooden acting, you know, but there was also some really great acting. I was especially I have a sort of a um two sided complaint here. It's like or a praise and complaint on the same thing. It's like I really like Rebecca Ferguson did a great job as Lady Jessica, but. I also didn't like how the script treated Lady Jessica. Like she was like crying and panicking the whole time. And like she cries like in five or six scenes in that movie. And, you know, she's a Bene Gesserit, but that's not how they act. You know, that's not, you know, she's. That's a good point. She's she's in control of herself like all the time. And I think that's like a character quality that they sort of misrepresented in this movie. But I also think that it's because, you know, they wanted to really show that she cares a ton about her son like any mother would or any parent would you know i thought oscar isaac as duke leto was awesome i think that's the best choice you could have made for that role i don't think you could have improved on that one i think baron harkonnen stellan skarsgård was perfectly cast i think he was different very different than the baron in lynch's dune he wasn't manic like in lynch's dune all of the harkonnens are like manic they look like they're on meth or something the whole time uh, that's just not how they are. In this version of them, they're really subdued. I personally think that helped the Baron's character a lot. So I might be alone in this. I have no idea. Uh, I haven't really discussed this with too many people yet. But no, I I, I thought that uh, it's it's. I thought that he. W- of course, we're going to compare it to twenty twenty four. But let's not forget, man. There have been other adaptations. True. There was a television series adaptation, right? right? That, I just uh, I, I, I have seen it years ago, but I I just haven't seen it, yeah I haven't seen it recently enough to um, so like bad. you know comment on it or anything. So uh, yeah, that's why I'm so kind of bad. leaving it out of the you know we're doing a Dune podcast and we're not. No, it's yeah. it's about the it's the, no question. And I thought that uh, I liked the Baron in this one better than the last one. Although I did like like one of the things that I really missed was the uh, I thought David Lynch brought a trippiness right. to the characters right, that sure. was like whoa that is so like he is just he wanted to to every time he. It was so psychedelic and every time you saw any any character or anything it was so out there and i love that i miss that can you just there imagine that that how much more trippy yodorowsky's version would have been you know you've seen oh the, you've seen the art you know, yeah story. it seems like they're getting away from that element of the story and maybe that's because you know when yodorowsky's was in development it was like the mid-70s and they were like in the height of the psychedelic wave uh, among young people had just splashed against the uh, shore. People, I think, at that time were like ready for it. You know, I mean, most of those people had been doing acid and, you know, eating mushrooms and stuff. Yeah, but I I see that's the thing, though, is that is coming back. 
you know, people are starting to really use psychedelics a lot. It's a massive movement. And Frank Herbert was into mushrooms. Right. He cultivated mushrooms. He was into it. I mean, psychedelics were everything in this book. Right. I took psychedelics that I talked about because of this book. Right. You know, and 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 I loved how you know, the, another part of the genius for him was recognizing that in so many indigenous cultures that like with the Freeman, that this psychedelic ritual was part of, you know, going and becoming an adult, you know, and, and Paul has to go through it. It's not just, Hey, Hey, learn how to, you know, float stuff in the air with Yoda, which is a little more cartoonish. It's more like real, like, dude, you're going to go into this freaking tent, you know, (laughs) in sweat lodge and you're going to take psychedelics and hopefully you make it out. (laughs) Cause when you go in there and you take a massive amount of psychedelics, it is a freaking death and you become reborn. Right. And that is exactly what happens in the book. With the, it's exactly the right. I think because of that, this movie is a little lacking in that department, especially. And that's definitely one of the reasons that I can't give it a perfect score. It doesn't really seem daring enough towards that end. And I get it. He is trying to make a movie for a wide mainstream audience. And he does want people who've never even seen an illegal drug in their life want to be able to watch the movie without feeling kind of left out. And but like you said, I think there is a big movement of psychedelic drug use and exploring clinical applications of psychedelics has become kind of a mainstream thing in the medical community too. Yeah, for so many reasons. And I, and I tell you what, I think that one of the most powerful aspects of sci-fi are the ability to tackle things and to deal with things that society isn't necessarily willing to talk about, like racism, right? We talk right. about this all the time, mm-hmm. racism, misogyny, and psychedelic use is another one. This is a taboo subject for a lot of people. And so I think that you shouldn't be backing away from the metaphor of talking about something that needs to be talked about. And so I will, I agree with you there. I think he should have dove in head first because, you know, we're, you're not actually freaking talking about the issue that really needs to be talked about, right. which is we should be looking at psychedelics to expand our minds so that we're not such a consumeristic, de- destroying culture. You know, right. I think that's the real subject for me, at least. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a heavy element of the story for sure. Yeah. But I loved, I, dude, I want to say this. I love like what going back. One of my favorite scenes, I think in the, uh, in the movie was when the emperor's, at least um, ship or his contingency his, his his herald. announced the plan, his herald. Yeah, dude, I thought the set design, I thought the way, I mean, this, I, he is so, Dennis Vu is so freaking amazing at creating worlds. I was like that visual of all of this and, and the costumes and everything. I was just drawn in. I love that. I wish the movie had more of that because it got smaller. Yeah, it did. As we went, it got a lot smaller and it was just like two, three people, five people in the desert. Right. So it went from this really big movie, which I kind of get. I mean, that's what happens in the book. Right. But then it went down to like, you know, but because it didn't have like the water of life or any of those things. And and, and to be fair, that should be coming in the next movie, right? right? Along with the Navigation Guild. Yeah. And the Spacing Guild and a number of other things that weren't introduced. When the, Another one that I 
thought for sure that character was introduced earlier. It definitely was. Okay, we talked about the Emperor and Princess Uryalon, who are both major characters in the novel. In the novel, Princess Uryalon is basically narrating it in a way. The chapters begin with excerpts from her journals. So, you know, she's a featured character in that way. She doesn't actually make it into the story until towards the end, but, you know, she's featured in that way. And the Emperor is, you know, mixed in the whole time. But they left, they decided to leave both of those characters out. And one other big character that they left out was Fade Rautha. In this movie, they have Raban, the Baron's sort of dumb nephew, who uh, is like a sadist who just wants to murder and kill people. Dude, he was good, man. He was, I agree. He was amazing. Bautista surprised me throughout his acting career, but he was excellent in this, man. I know, every time, right? You're like, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He uh, In Blade Runner 2049, I honestly thought he could have gotten like a best supporting actor nod. He was amazing. Just for the tiny little part that he has in that movie. Just because it was so good. I like know. he was so good. And he was good in this one too, although his character is a lot less nuanced in this movie. His character, the Beast Raban, is just like a meathead. But he played it perfect. The guy's a meathead, right? <laughs> he did play it perfectly. I agree. I, I agree. He did have like the undercurrent of extreme anger and hate and all that. I definitely bought it for sure. But that's where the negation and not putting in and leaving out Fade was such a big deal because he Fade is the yin to that yang. Yeah, right. right? He's like, he's, he's a sadist too, but he's subdued and calculating and smart. Cunning and fucking, oh. I thought Sting was amazing at him, man. Oh yeah, me too. I actually think Steam was an excellent choice for that. I've got a great idea. If hey producers, hey legendary pictures and DV, you guys check out the podcast and peep my idea. I think they should cast Bill Skarsgård as that role. Uh, yeah. Bill's the one who played it. Yeah, he's amazing. He's a he great would be actor. So good. And he's still in Skarsgård's son. You know what I mean? So they would yeah. be actual relatives playing relatives in the That would be so cool, man. I hope they do it. And, you know, I think he'd be great for that role, you know, personally. They got to bring him back. I mean, they have to bring him back, dude. Well, right? he'll definitely be in the next movie. I mean, because like the climactic scene of Dune. Is, is Fade and uh, yeah, Fade, and Fade Paul. versus Paul. Yeah. 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 Having a knife fight. You know, that is the climactic scene of the book. So, I mean, clearly he'll have to be introduced unless they completely change the plot in the second half. Yeah. What did you think of uh, Duncan Idaho, Jason Momoa? You know, I generally think Jason Momoa is kind of all right. He's okay in the Justice League movies. I feel like he's getting better. I will say that. But I, I think he was cool. You know, he's like a little- yeah, I liked like, him. thought it was his best role yet. I agree. I agree with that. I think it was his yeah. best role yet. I think he did his best job. My wife got so pissed off that they shaved his beard halfway through the movie. And, <laughs> and she was like, what did they do? What did they do? You know, because he's like, hasn't appeared in anything without a beard yet. Yeah, so, that's yeah. true. I wonder why they did that. That doesn't that doesn't really make sense ex- to be down on a all. planet, down on a planet where you're in just the desert. <laughs> there's not a whole lot of shit anywhere to do anything. Yeah, how you, you gonna shave without you the water? Yeah, exactly. How are you? Dude, <laughs> amen. You just killed it. I never even thought about that. How that was my wife pointed out. I was like, what is? what happened there? Why did they do that? And I was like, I do not yeah. know. <laughs> I thought the Benny Gesserit Reverend Mother, I thought she was okay. I thought that the, she was better in Lynch's movie by I far. thought the costume was cool, though. Uh, one of the things yeah. I liked about this movie is that all of the costumes really felt like things people would actually wear. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like seeing a religious figure wearing like that knitted hat veil type thing didn't feel too far out there for me. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, yeah, that seems like something somebody in this weird witch cult would wear. 
Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of true throughout the whole movie. I never thought at any point they overdid it with any of the design stuff. Dude, I thought, you know, when the Timothy Chalamet was amazing as Paul. I thought he was great. I thought he was good. My biggest comparison of him on film, obviously, is Kyle McLaughlin. And he brought like a real wink and smile sort of charm to the character. You know what I mean? He was like the friendly Paul. What I liked about this one comparatively is he was younger. Yeah, yeah. One, he was younger. He's only he was actually the actor is only two years younger than Kyle McLaughlin. Timothy Chalamet was only two years younger. He does look younger too. Yes, exactly. And and he also behaves like a sullen teen, which does exactly. make sense. You exactly. know what I mean? That is probably more true to the actual character in the book. That's what I liked about that, yeah. He is kind of like, I mean, it wouldn't a little bit, but then again, he uh, does have a couple of cool little freak out scenes that are pretty good. I just, you know, the thing that I liked about him is that being around mm-hmm. teens, you know, especially doing jujitsu, a lot of them are so quiet anyways and unsure of themselves and not like over the top that I was like, yeah, I like that. I like that he, I could see how he's going to have a much bigger arc than in the Lynch movie because of his character's just, you know, quietness and, you know, so from that perspective, I kind of, uh, I kind of dug it. What'd you think about uh, Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck? He was very good. That was probably among my favorite casting choices for this. We're comparing him to Patrick Stewart, another super beloved actor or whatever. But one thing they left out was that Gurney is a musician. You know what I mean? He's always walking around playing his... Um, yeah, he's got like that little balisa. Yeah, that's a good point. I forgot about that. That was a big deal in the book too. But I guess in the book, you know, they're trying to paint him as this person with two distinct sides, like the warrior poet, you know? Yes, Exactly. Let's make him different than Duncan Idaho. Right. He's different than Duncan Idaho and that he's like, you know, those two different things. But they kind of didn't do that in this. And I don't think that's Josh Boland's fault, though. No, no, no. I don't either. I think uh, the director was trying to streamline a lot of this and say, let's just keep this thing moving. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, I think there's not a lot of choice when you're given a project of this size. You know, they still put that somehow in David Lynch's Dune, but David Lynch's Dune was almost incomprehensible to a lot of people, especially those people who'd never read the book. I dug the dude who was through for uh, Howitt, who was the uh, Mentat. I thought that was cool how his eyes went white when he was calculating. I thought that was a great – I thought the way they did the Mentats was – pretty cool because in case you don't know a mentat is a human computer yeah because in this universe they've outlawed thinking machines yeah because they had a huge civil war called the butlerian jihad right against thinking machines because right. ai started taking over. in fact that book about the butlerian jihad that was written by uh his son is one of the best dune books it's amazing. I watched this really cool video online, and it was like a nine-minute history of the entire Dune universe. I watched it a couple of days ago. And when they get to the Butlerian Jihad, it's very interesting. You know, all of the stuff's really glossed over because it's only a nine-minute long video. But Yeah. So that's why they have – every house has a Mentat, right? Right. And they're like heavily educated, heavily disciplined human beings, basically. Yeah. And each house. So Harkonnen has one also. And we see their Mentat also. Right, uh, um, that character's name, Peter DeVries, the guy who played him in this movie, he's appeared in several other, I can't quite say his name, David, David Dosmolchon or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I can't say yeah. his name. I'm, I apologize to you, terrific actor 
who's been in a lot of great things. This is uh, the third movie by Denis Villeneuve that he's been in, and he's also very recently in the Suicide Squad movie, and he has been fantastic in all of those movies. Yeah. You know who I thought was weak, and I thought the whole plot line, and maybe just because I didn't buy the, I, there just wasn't enough exposition explaining the Sook Doctor who betrayed, uh, yeah, the, it, be, because in the book, yeah, there's a lot him, leading up to, uh, like, for him to break that training and actually betray the Duke and the house like that. He, in this one, it was just like, oh, they captured your family. So you, he cracked. And it was right. like, no, he had mental training to where he could never crack. And for the Harkonnens to actually do that showed in the book how just ruthless they were. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In this one, it was just that. like, yeah, we just took kidnapped your wife and then blah, blah, That's blah, it. blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Dr. Yeah. UA betrayal. But, you know, Part of the reason that he was also they, – they do kind of cover it a little bit. But part of the reasons he was willing to betray the house and betray his own training is because he also believes that he's going to be able to kill Baron Harkonnen in the process. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he tries and fails You know, in every version. He can't do it. I, I do love how much damage the Duke was able to do in this version compared to the last one. Because in the last one, in the Lynch version, the Baron is, ends up just laughing. You know, once he bites into the poison and spews it. In this one, everyone in the freaking room dies except – their eyes melt. Yeah. In (laughs) in this one, the Baron has only survived just because of the suspensors, which float him up to the ceiling, right? And he gets away from from the the poison and he still almost dies. Right. So, yeah, I thought that was – I thought that was really cool. That was a nice change. Here's another cool detail. One one of the interesting details when they go – to the military planet where all the Sardaukar are getting ready to go into battle and they've got those human sacrifices going on and that weird throat singing, chanting going on. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a pretty effective and cool scene because it definitely made the Sardaukar look scary as shit. Yeah, uh, and they're supposed to be. And I right. don't think that was has really been done effectively. Right. Until until this movie. And I thought you're right. I thought it was really friggin' dope. And, and because they had set them up to be so scary and intimidating, it was it made for a cool scene when Duncan like bows up at a couple of them and they all like back away. Yeah. Uh, yeah when, he's right? getting, when he's like getting on that thopter. So I was like, okay, well that shows you how intimidating and well known Duncan Idaho is as a warrior. And him dying in this film, I tell you what, as you learn more about the universe of Dune and these sequels come through, he becomes one of the most important characters, right? It's so Okay, uh, we're we're, going to let you guys on a little another spoiler. Duncan Idaho gets cloned and comes back as a clone. And with is, memories, they're able to bring back with like partial memories and right. all that. So, and he's even more fucking awesome. <laughs> yes, he is. It's so dope. It's so rad. And he probably won't be back for Dune Part Two, but if they make a Dune Part Three, we might see the return of Duncan Idaho. Yeah, but you can always read the sequel, so it's not. Like, you know what I mean? Books are great. <laughs> yeah, but you won't get to look at Jason Momoa's hot bod i'm afraid yeah. <laughs> the um but you can imagine it yeah you just imagine yeah just just put a hang a picture of jason momoa from aquaman on your wall and dude how about javier bardem as stogar that was so I thought that good, was a great man. choice I, thought, I, I, think, know. I think that was an excellent choice you know another one of my favorite casting decisions in the movie i thought it was also cool that him and josh brolin got to reunite yeah after no country for old men one of the greatest movies ever yeah got to be in another movie together and i think really we have to circle back as we finish up here to just 
really give credit to Dennis. I can never speak. Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve to give him credit for being such an incredible freaking director. Because look at this cast. Everyone wants to work with him, right? Right. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, ex- this is amazing, point. and there's world building, and he—I just think he did an amazing job with this. Um, honestly, I couldn't agree with you more. The cast is a testament to how a bunch of a draw he is as a director. How about this? Hans Zimmer chose to write the score to this movie instead of working with Christopher Nolan on Tenet. No way. Yes. Wow. So I mean, that's, that's, a, that's I mean, you know, that's a big testament to his strength and popularity right now as a director. And you know, it's based on performance. Truthfully, yeah. you know, Prisoners, Arrival, and Blade Runner twenty forty nine in a row. Dude, I haven't seen Prisoners yet. Oh, de- definitely. It's, it also stars that. It also has that. David Das Marchand, however you say his name. Yeah, I know there are probably some French Canadians out there who are laughing their asses off <laughs> at me right now. And, you know, forgive me. You know, I'm sorry. I'm ignorant. I can't pronounce every name. But yeah, he he did a great job, man. His He did such an amazing freaking job. I, it is, of course, we're going to critique the movie because it's, you know, our favorite book. You know, and book series. So we got a few more things to hit before we take off, though. I, let's I, I, do it. A couple more things. One, Dr. Kynes. You know, they gender swap Dr. Kynes. I don't think that the gender swap makes any difference at all. That's right. Yeah, I didn't either at all. When they introduced Dr. Kynes, I hardly blinked an eye just because I'm like, okay, it's a, yeah. it's a lady in this version. That means nothing to me because that, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But I thought that actor did great. Well cast cool character and really fit the Fremen look that they had going on for this movie, even though Kynes is only sort of a Fremen. I thought that was great. One thing I wanted to mention that I just loved the detail of is when the Reverend Mother visits Varen Harkonnen, there's that crazy looking spider creature in the chamber and the Reverend Mother won't talk while it's in there. Yes. And it is one of the wildest and most disgusting looking things I've ever seen. And I loved it. Yeah. And that's not in the book. There's no creature like that in the book. But we mentioned very briefly at the beginning of this episode, the Benetilax, and they're like this crazy cloning cult, similar to the Bene Gesserit, but what they do is like body modification. Okay, so in this universe, okay, one thing you have to know is that in the Dune universe, no non-human life has been found to exist, ever. So all of the characters, and that includes the Basin Guild, and that includes all of them, are descendant from the human diaspora from earth removed by 10,000 20,000 years yeah but they're all everything that you see is human in some way which is why when they show that creature and it looks like a crazy spider but it still has human hands and i think that is just to kind of indicate how far the genetic modification from this cult which i don't know if it'll make it into later parts of the movie or whatever but it's just a reference to that and I think they did a great job of just like showing what kind of crazy shit is going on with genetic modification in this universe. Very cool. Yeah. And it is a big part of it. Right. It is. It totally is. I just wanted to mention that real quick because I thought that was a pretty interesting thing to add in there. Like totally, like I said, not in the book at all and totally just a DV decision to make to put that in there. But it was neat. I liked it. Totally. Totally cool. Let's see. Is there anything else I wanted to talk about? Oh, Alia, that's the one thing I wanted to talk about, is the introduction of Alia in the next book. And that's Lady Jessica's daughter from Duke Lido. And 
obviously it doesn't appear in this movie, but they, you know, we find out that Lady Jessica is pregnant in this movie. And for those of you who don't know, Alia has like crazy powers like from birth. Because, spoiler, she ends up drinking the water of life, the spice melange, in while she has her in the womb, yeah. which awakens these crazy powers. So then you get Paul, who becomes, it's, dude, it's so good, the Kwisatz Haderach and Alia. So it's so rad. So in all, love the movie. So glad it exists. Finally, finally a version of the movie that you can show someone to make them understand the universe for the most part without having to stop and explain every two seconds. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there are still some things you'll have to explain, but you won't have to pause and be like, okay, that's because blah, 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 like constantly, which you do have to do with the David Lynch version if you show it to someone who's never read the book. Because I think, you know, our complaints are you're leaving a few things out. I think that Denis made the choice. I'm going to leave some things out so that people can understand the story that I'm going to tell. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes, I'm exactly. not going to confuse it where David Lynch was like, I'm going to throw it, which I loved also because I read the book. Right. So, you know, it's a different approach. This was really made for people who had not read the book. So uh, we're looking at the next installment to come out just next year now. I know. Next, next October. So uh, I assume they're going to go start filming like yesterday. Now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we should just go ahead and plan to do another installment of the podcast once that sequel comes out as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't wait. I'm so stoked. I'm going to watch this movie like 10 more times in the next 30 30 days. It's going to be a background movie for me going forward, I think. It already kind of has an effect on me. And that says a lot, right? Yeah. That says a lot. He brings us into that world. You want to be part of that world. You don't necessarily have to be engaged with the plot, but you always look over. Especially since we're both so familiar with the plot. You know what I mean? So if if you're familiar enough with the plot, you don't have to be paying attention to know what's going on, but you could just look over and see, oh, the worm. That's a thing we completely messed up. What did you think of the maker design? I thought it was cool. I, I didn't, I didn't, the only qualm I had with it was when they showed one of the Freeman riding it, it didn't look big enough. Well, you know, there are worms of various sizes. I thought the same thing yeah. too. You know what I mean? I thought, well, make it massive. I want go big. Well, I think maybe one, I, I, I thought the same thing, but I also thought, well, most Fremen can't ride the very big worms is my yeah. thinking is that it takes, yeah. it takes like someone who's really, really good to ride one of the big good worms. point, but I thought it was cool. I thought the worm was cool. I thought, uh, I think I like the worms better in the Lynch version. Yeah. It's um, the fact that it didn't have like the try or the, th- yes. the three segmented mouth. Yeah. It's a little weird to me. What did you think about Chani? We didn't talk about Chani. I personally know that Zendaya is a terrific actor because I've seen her in a show called Euphoria. Euphoria, yeah. And Euphoria is kind of a messed up show and everything. I've only watched a few episodes of it, but she is amazing in it. She is Emmy Award winning level, excellent, 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 excellent acting in that show. Top notch. Like as good as you can get, really. So I know she's capable of that kind of work. I don't think she got an opportunity in this film to do any of that. Her role in part one was extremely limited. And I think that's why they decided to give her the monologue at the beginning of the movie. They were going to have to do an expository monologue. So they gave it to her. To give us some kind of a connection yeah, just give us, to, exactly. to her character. Because you're right. Yeah. And so she doesn't appear enough. I think she certainly looks the part. I will have to wait and see when they really get into her character quite a bit more. She's a much bigger deal in the second half of the book, in part two. She's, in fact, I've heard 
Denis Villeneuve say that he thinks that she will be the main protagonist of part two. Mm, that's interesting. That's very over Paul. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see because, you know, part of it is Chani loves Paul, but she's at his side while he becomes the emperor of the known universe. Yeah. You know what I mean? And she's just yeah. she's just a Fremen who's been living in the sand her entire life. Yeah. So it's it's a complicated situation for her. But I, I look forward to her, like, you know, getting to see more of her, truthfully. Yeah, she was good. I liked her. I, but again, her character was very, very, very limited. Yeah, they limited it a lot. And, you know, a lot of people were like, the movie's kind of sexist because they gave her such a limited role. And I was like, I could sort of see that point, but... That's the story. Her, yeah, her role is really <laughs> limited up until that point in the book. Up until that point, because it's really a story about him. The first half or this part of the story is him coming to a new place. And really so much of the story, he's not even in the desert until the last third of the movie. Right. You know, we, he's on he's on Caladan and then they're in the palace on on Arrakis. And they don't even leave that until like, you know, towards the end of the movie. So that's not a really a fair criticism. Anytime I hear criticisms that are outside of my wheelhouse when people say that's sexist, that's racist, that kind of thing. Since I don't get affected by those kinds of things as much because I'm a white guy, I try to be as open-minded as I possibly can about it and be like, okay, well, maybe it is. Let me see how I could, you know what I mean? So if somebody pitches that criticism, I'm willing to take it at face value. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. I think it was great. We did ramble a little bit on this one though. But No, it was good, man. It was so cool. So cool. All right. What are we going to do next? Do we have a, a plan for the next episode? I've had, I've had a couple of ideas for the next episode. The new Matrix will be coming out pretty soon, but maybe we should wait until after we watch the new Matrix to do a Matrix episode. Yeah, we should do that. Battlestar Galactica is a possible one. I don't know if you're a fan of Battlestar. Oh, I'm a huge fan. I've seen everything. Old series, new series. Okay. All right. I've seen quite a bit of both, but not the whole thing either in either one. But, uh, you know, I do enjoy it. Oh, it's so good. Dude, I know it's a little bit out of our wheelhouse. I texted you this, but I just started watching Batman, uh, one of, part of the trilogy. I'm going to rewatch the whole trilogy. We should do that. That is, Christopher Nolan is so fucking good. It is so amazing of a story. You did text me this, and I'm a little hesitant on this one. Here are the reasons. One, because Batman is only barely science fiction. You know what I mean? Barely. Just, just, just by a little bit. You know what I mean? And But those those movies did have a little bit more science fiction than some of the other ones because they had all the wiretapping and all that or like, you know, the cell phone tapping. And there, there are a few sci- sci-fi concepts in that movie for sure. But it's not, strictly speaking, a science fiction property. Just a reason I say it is because it's a masterpiece. Well, the three of them together are so friggin' good. I could not believe it. The other reason I would be a little hesitant is because Christopher Nolan has several science fiction movies too. You know what I mean? Like actual, like full. We should do a Christopher Nolan episode. Let's do that. Maybe a Christopher, a Christopher Nolan episode would not be a bad idea. That, that's a better idea. I love that. Let's do that. You know, he's had quite a few movies that are like, you know, tops, you know, Interstellar. <sighs> Interstellar is not my favorite movie ever, but I recognize its impact. And I love Inception, man. Yeah, and Inception is another. And we can talk about how bad Tenet was. I still haven't seen Tenet, so I might give it a. You know, <laughs> oh, you, I can't wait. You need to watch that and let's do that next. <laughs> I, I can't wait. You know what? Let's do it. We'll do a Christopher Nolan one next. And we'll, I'll watch Tenet as a preparation. Sounds like a, perfect, sounds like a great idea. Perfect. All right, cool. All right. All right, man. That was great. Let's, uh, until then, let's uh, each commit to watching Dune 20 more times. Yeah, done. Done. <laughs> I'll shake on it. You know, virtual high five, bro. Okay. Yeah, all, right, all right, brother. All right, man. You have a good one. You too. Late. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, 
You can definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds Magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker, and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 